All right, well, we're back in the Gospel Project this week. And uh, we started this journey back in September, so we're almost one-third of the way through the three-year journey through Scripture. And I wanted just to remind us this morning of what, why we're doing this and kind of what the overall purpose is. And first of all, this was a way to encourage community and unity after two years of kind of being scattered, really, and, and having everything that we do on Sunday morning. So, so our, our little kids and, and, and up to our, our, you know, all of our kids are doing the same passage this morning. Uh, I know our 55-plus group was going through this together. And, and so this is, was just kind of one simple way to say, hey, let's just kind of all together across the whole church go through this journey together, one biblical story. Uh, secondly, so, 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 so the first thing was just to encourage uh, some community and unity. The second was is that the whole premise of the Gospel Project is that we experience the Bible in its entirety, though, of course, selective, because we can't do verse by verse over three years, as one story with one theme and one central purpose, and that's to lead us to Jesus Christ. So in Luke chapter 24, Jesus is, after the resurrection, he is on the road to Emmaus. Well, actually, some disciples are on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus decides he's going to go and tag along with them, and it's really quite an entertaining story if you just kind of step back and go, I, mean, I wonder what this would have been like to, to walk with these guys because they were discouraged, they were downcast. Jesus had just been crucified. It's been three days. Some, some of the women that went to the tomb in the morning said they saw him alive and it's just too much to, to believe, it's too much to understand. And Jesus comes and he's walking with them in the midst of this and, and he's like, what's going on? What are you guys talking about? And they're like, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's been going on? He's like, well, tell me more. You know, it's kind of funny. It's kind of entertaining that Jesus would just kind of, yeah, what's been going on? And they tell him all about, you know, we, this Jesus of Nazareth, man, he was, he was doing miracles. He was proclaiming God's kingdom. And we thought he was the Messiah, but he was killed by the Romans. Game over. And we're just devastated. We're going home. That's it. And Jesus kind of goes, well, didn't all the law and the prophets lead up to this? And then beginning with Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he starts to explain to them that his purpose was to come and die. And yet they don't even recognize who he is until they're sitting down together to have a meal and he breaks the bread and blesses it. And then they, they realize it's Jesus. And he disappears. And here's what Jesus said. He said, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all scripture the things concerning himself. Another scene out of John's gospel, Jesus is having a bit of a conflict with the religious leaders of the day. These guys that like study the Bible and make sure everybody follows it to the letter, like they know the Bible inside out and backwards. And Jesus is in conflict with these guys because they don't believe anything he says or does. And so he says this in John chapter 5, 39 to 40. He says, you search the scriptures because that you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness to me and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This, this is to lead us to Jesus. 
Not just a book of rules. Not just basic instructions before leaving earth. But to lead us to Jesus. A person. 2 Timothy 3 Often we go to 3.16 and 17, but back it up two verses and listen to what Paul says to Timothy, a young pastor. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing that, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so the whole purpose of Scripture, the purpose of the Bible, is personal. It is, its primary purpose is not to tell us what to do, but to whom we need to go in faith and surrender. It leads us to Jesus. And so God's Word leads us to Jesus, the risen Lord, the coming King, to the Savior of the world, the, the one who embodies the love of God for his people, displayed once and for all on the cross where he died for us and rose again in victory over death and hell and Satan so we could have life and freedom and wholeness in this life and forever. And one of the realities I hope you're starting to see as we're going through the Bible is that God's purposes come through broken and sinful people. People who even when their intentions are good, think of Abraham, think of Moses, Isaac, Jacob, I mean, every person in Scripture has something not quite right going on in their lives. There's not a single human character apart from Jesus Christ who gets it all right all the time. The Bible's a messy book about messy people who walk in relationship with a holy and patient and a loving and wrathful God who cannot tolerate sin but who also makes it possible for us to approach his throne of grace with boldness because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. We no longer have to perform for God to be good enough. Jesus has done that. We no longer have to offer repeated sacrifices. Jesus has offered a sacrifice once for all, for all sin. We don't earn God's favor by doing enough good things to offset our failures and our badness. Jesus has taken all our sin and all our failure and all our arrogance and all our pride in religious performance and nailed it to the cross so that we can live in freedom from our sinfulness and our need to perform for acceptance. And so the gospel project is to lead us to Jesus so that our lives can be changed by him. And today we pick up the story of God's purposes in the life of Saul, the king of Israel. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. We'll start there. Saul starts off well. If you remember, it's been a couple weeks, but we met King Saul. You know, Saul is the king the people asked for because Samuel's sons were failing. They weren't leading. They weren't following God. The people wanted a king so they could be like all the nations around them. God said, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me as king over them. They were rejecting their role as a priestly kingdom and a holy nation that God intended for them. They didn't want to be set apart. They didn't want to be different. And they got what they asked for. And Saul starts off well. Saul starts out great. 
We saw that two weeks ago. God blesses this man whom the people wanted as their king in rebellion against God. And that's quite a, quite a tension, isn't it? But eventually, inevitably, perhaps, Saul fails, as all human kings and leaders eventually do. And today we see the beginnings of this failure. Saul faces some significant tests, tests of his patience and tests of his leadership, and he fumbles it, and the consequences are serious. It costs him. And so two scenes from Saul's life we're going to look at today. We start in chapter 13. And we're going to look at the problem of Saul's patience. And so we're going to be ducking in and out of some, some different verses. I'm not going to be reading huge passages today, so we'll, we'll just get you to sit. So, so the story is, is that Saul's going out to fight the Philistines, and somewhere along the way, Samuel said, I'm, I'm going to be, I will come to your camp, and we will offer sacrifices, and we'll have a prayer meeting and a worship time before you go off to war, okay? I'll be there in seven days. Well, the troops are amassed. Philistines are on the horizon. Day five, no Samuel. Day six, no Samuel. The morning of day seven, Samuel's not there yet. The troops are getting nervous. People are starting to leave. They're like, ah, we don't know if we can do this. There's way more Philistines than us. We're, we're getting scared. Samuel still hasn't shown up. So what does Saul do? Verse 8, he waited seven days to the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him, and Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within uh, come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God which he commanded you. For when the Lord would... for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept the commandment. The, the Lord commanded you. How many of you like waiting in line? <laughs> How's your patience? You know, it's, it's 8.30 in the morning, everybody's, you know, driving to drop the kids off at the high school, and you glance over and you look at that lineup, it jitters, it's right out to the highway. Eh, I'll go wait, I'll, maybe 15, 20 minutes, that'll clear up. Uh, the, the, the lineup at A&W at like 11.45, it's like around behind the liquor store, out to the high, you know, Tim Hortons, you know, they got two, but there's still a lineup there, and you know, sometimes we, ah, maybe I should just go home for lunch. That's the financially responsible thing to do. <laughs> but we live in a very impatient culture. Who remembers dial-up internet? <laughs> bing, 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 bing. 
I mean, advertisers are still using that. I, you couldn't even, I, nobody sells that anymore anyway. I, I, I don't think dial-up exists anymore. 56K was as fast as it could go. Now we're at like, what, one gigabit per second? Like, but boy, would we be impatient, how impatient, you know, reload, 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 something's not working. We're so impatient. Well, Saul had a problem with patience. Samuel was supposed to be there on day seven. It's 6.30 in the morning. Where is he? Now, Samuel didn't say when. He was going to be there on day seven. Maybe it was later in the day. Maybe he had a, you know, maybe he got stuck in the Tim Hortons drive-thru. I was going to joke this morning. I was almost late for worship team practice. I, you know, hit all the red lights between here and home. There's one. <laughs> but he has a pro- Saul has a problem with patience. Samuel isn't there on day seven. People are getting antsy. Some are leaving. There's a battle to be fought, and the troops are wondering what's going on, and Samuel doesn't seem to be coming. So Saul does the logical thing. He takes the initiative. He knows he has to seek the favor of God, and so he does it. But he doesn't do it according to the word of the Lord. Saul goes ahead and in place of Samuel, outside the calling of God in his life, Saul offers sacrifices to get things taken care of. And that's his first big mistake. No sooner does Saul offer the sacrifice than Samuel shows up. The first words out of his mouth sound eerily familiar to Genesis 3.13. When God speaks to Eve and says, what have you done? Saul did what we've all done at some point in our lives. We're in a situation. We feel threatened. We feel insecure. Things aren't going the way we thought they would, so we take matters into our own hands and we rush a decision. Saul started, stated that the issue was clearly that he at least was admitting what he did in this situation. Look again at uh, verse 12. He kind of admits it. Listen, look at that word. I forced myself. I pushed myself forward. I, I forced the issue. See, in Saul's case, victory over the enemy and the need to prove himself as a leader of the people overcame his need to be patient and wait for God's timing. In many ways, his logic, driven by insecurity, pushed him to disobey God and what God had instructed through Samuel. But we don't have a, a, actually have a record of that conversation with Samuel. So Saul has a problem with patience. When we get impatient with something, perhaps we need to stop, take a breath, and ask ourselves, what is driving us in that moment? What's going on in my heart? What am I afraid of? Why am I needing to act instead of to wait? And who am I trusting in that moment? Am I trusting myself or am I trusting God? How is my impatience a sign of lack of trust in God's goodness and his care for me? So first thing, the problem of patience. 
We flip over to chapter 15. We see another problem that Saul has, and it's the problem of people-pleasing. So the story is here is that, is that Samuel said to Saul, hey, there's this, uh, this people, this town that needs to be defeated. And you're to devote everything to destruction. And so Saul and the army, they go out and they, they take the city and they devote almost everything to destruction. But they keep the king alive and they keep the best of the animals. They keep all the loot, the good stuff, the best stuff. Now listen, we'll pick it up. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. This is verse 10, 11. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning and it was told to Samuel, Saul has come to Carmel. Behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And we won't even deal with that he set up a monument to himself. There's an issue of pride here in his heart too. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, Well, what's the bleeding of sheep in my ears? And the lowing of the oxen that I hear. And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said, speak. Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of all the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission. Go devote to destruction the sinners the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep, oxen, best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Wow, quite a story. When Samuel confronts Saul, notice that he makes all sorts of excuses for not obeying God's clear instructions. He denies the severity of the problem and he blames others. He takes no responsibility for the situation and even suggests that what has been done is holy and honorable. We're, we're going to give it to God as an offering of worship. 
See, many ways, this is a great case study for at least five forms of denial. Now, Freedom Session, Ken Dick, here's a definition for you of what denial is. Denial is a chosen strategy we use to justify not dealing with the pain or unresolved conflict in our lives. The unhealthy means by which we escape the pain and avoid conflict. Denial is a learned commitment to self-preservation. Denial is a learned commitment to self-preservation. And we see this in Saul. He wants to be thought of well by the people. He wants to be in control of the situation. He sets up a, a, a monument to himself and he has all the excuses in the world why what he has done is okay. But he knew that what was happening and what he was allowing and participating in was wrong. Saul, Samuel had clearly communicated God's expectations to him. You gotta go back to the beginning of the chapter. He chose not to obey. When confronted, Saul responded in five ways, all denying the problem and his responsibility for the problem. First, he justified it. He said, I've performed the commandment of the Lord. We won the battle. That must count for something. That must mean that God's on my side. That means that what we are now doing is okay. Right out of the gate, Saul justifies his disobedience. He doesn't see a problem with what he's done, and he's pretending that he has obeyed when he hasn't. He's justifying himself, verse 13. Next, he spiritualizes the problem. Verse 15, we saved all the good stuff to sacrifice to the Lord. But this isn't what God asked of you. But you're going to explain it away as an act of worship. It's like cheating on your taxes so you can say, I'm just going to give more to the church. Or I'll give more to charity. Now, Saul might be thinking that in the requirements for sacrifices that you can read in Leviticus, it's got to be the best stuff. And perhaps he's using God's word to justify his disobedience. We took all the best stuff because we know that to worship God, we need to offer the best. So he spiritualizes the problem. He tries to divert it to say, hey, this is what God requires for sacrifice, so it's okay. Thirdly, he rationalizes, verse 15, the second part of 15 and 21, closely associated to justifying and spiritualizing. Saul argues that what he has done makes sense. We did obey most of the instructions, and we had an honorable reason for doing what we did. This is, this is the point where, where Saul is saying something like this, and if you ever use this phrase, watch yourself. I know God's word says, but... And anything that follows the but is a problem. I know God's word says this, but, but I, I really need to go this way. I really need to do this instead. So when you start rationalizing your disobedience, diversion and blaming, I'll combine a couple denial strategy here. Notice what Saul does here. First of all, it's an offering to the Lord your God. He doesn't say my God. He doesn't say our God. That's a significant little change in the pronouns. Secondly, he says the people. I was more afraid of the people than of God. The people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. The people have done this so that they could worship. I feared the people. It's their fault, not mine. 
You're the king, though. That's what Samuel comes back with. He's pointing the finger, but he's the leader, and he's trying to change the subject. But we, we're, we were going we're gonna to celebrate this victory that God gave us and offer all this great stuff to him in worship. It's kind of a diversion tactic. Look, we're, gonna, we're heading up to have a great party about this victory. So I was like, stop. Stop. He justifies it, he spiritualizes, he rationalizes, he tries to throw a diversion and he blames other people and he minimizes the problem altogether. Verse 19. Verse 19, Samuel is challenging him, why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission God sent me. I brought the king We've defeated him. I devoted the Amalekites to destruction. I've, I've done it. But, you know, we saved some of the best for last. Okay, so we didn't do things exactly the way God wanted, but really it isn't all that bad. There's logical, uh, okay reasons for this. Samuel just calls it flat-out disobedience. Saul says he did exactly what God wanted and basically tells Samuel that his conclusion about preserving the best animals and allowing the king of the Amalekites to live was wrong. Samuel, you're wrong. And this is common for common one for us. We know something that we're doing in our lives or how we're making a decision isn't according to what God would have us do, but the circumstances suggest we should do something else and, and our intentions may even be good. What we've done really isn't that bad. It's not as bad as other people's sins. There's a lot more we could go into on this issue of denial and what it looks like and how it affects our lives, but just let me say this. If at the core of it, it's lying to yourself and to others and to God, and at least one of those persons knows who's lying. God knows exactly what the truth is. Denial is an avoidance of taking responsibility for the reality in your life. It's not admitting that your actions and attitudes have been sinful and have trampled on the holiness of God. Denial will keep you emotionally frozen and distant from everyone in your life because you've got to keep up the lie and it will rob you of joy and put a massive wall between yourself and God. Jesus said, I am the truth and he cannot tolerate us living in deception and lies and some of the most damaging lies in our lives are the ones we have told ourselves to protect ourselves and ensure that we remain in control. And Samuel has to confront Saul with the truth of his actions. This is exactly what you have done, and it is against what God has asked of you. You have to face the denial and your disobedience And it came at a high cost. Saul maintained this. And look at verse 24 to 26 again. Even when he confesses, there's something in here. See, living in denial and living in disobedience, willfully avoiding the truth has consequences. And sometimes even when we face them and we admit we have done wrong, consequences remain. Saul, he says, okay, I've sinned, I've transgressed, I, I have disobeyed the Lord and your words. 
Interesting, I, I think he could have said the words of the Lord because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, now please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. I, I want this to go away as quickly as possible. Sometimes that's not how it works. Even in Saul's confession, he is still walking in a bit of denial. I feared the people, I obeyed their voice. He's again shifting the blame. Perhaps if he had stopped the sentence a clause earlier, I have sinned before heaven and I have sinned against God. Please forgive me. Without an excuse, things would have been different. And Samuel says, I'm sorry, but the consequences are going to fall. And he turns to walk away and Saul grabs his coat because he doesn't want to let go of his control. He doesn't want to let go of his power and he rips Samuel's cloak and Samuel has to turn around and says, God is ripping the kingdom out of your hand because you refuse to walk in humility. He is walking in self-preservation. Samuel's coat rips and the symbolic nature of this is not lost in that moment. Saul's days as king are numbered. Saul was to be a prince over God's people, but he is acting as the absolute sovereign. He is presuming more than God has appointed for him. And that's the third problem we find in this passage too, the problem of presumption. There's a short poem, and it's quoted in other places in the Bible too, in various fragments. This comes up in the Psalms. But look at verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption, the iniquity of idolatry. It's not, it's not that what you've done is bad, it's worse than you think. The underlying severity of Saul's sin. He has acted in rebellion, and that's as bad as, as divination, as witchcraft, basically, is what, is what God is saying here. And presumption, to, to presume that I, I can make a change to God's commands, that, that, that I can kind of skirt the issue, that, that, that maybe God didn't mean what he said, and I can, I can bend it to my own uh, privilege and my own power and, and my own wealth, that's presumptuous, and that's the iniquity of idolatry. That's putting myself before God. That's saying, I know better than God. That's why it's so bad, the problem of presumption. And we see this in the Psalms and in Isaiah and even all the way to Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. God doesn't want the sacrifices. He wants obedient hearts. Saul's presumption was that in offering God the best sacrifices, he could secure high favor with God, but the sacrifices are wholly secondary to a relationship with God. We walk in humble submission to him in our lives. To not walk in obedience is to live in rebellion and is as bad as divination. And these would have been like the worst sins imaginable to the Israelite people. Presuming on God's grace. So I think Saul kind of had this thing, well, you know, yeah, I know Lord said to do all this, but if we offer this in worship, I'm sure he'll be gracious. I can sin, God will forgive me. I know this is wrong, but... I know God's word said, but presuming on God's grace is living in iniquity and is idolatry. 
We cannot presume on the grace of God without knowing that there's going to be consequences. Saul's actions spring from pride, arrogance, and insecurity. He is leading from a place, he is not leading from a place of humble dependence and submission to the Lord. He fails as a king of Israel because he fears the people more than he fears the Lord. The prayer of Samuel at the end of chapter 12 stands in a stark contrast to all that transpires after Sam, uh, Saul is made king. Remember this prayer at the end of chapter 12, verse 20 to 25. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have, you have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Or consider what great things he has done for you. But if you do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. If we put the book of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and Kings into the context, because in, in Jewish thought they're really one whole story, it ends in the exile. And even Samuel's prayer here, if you do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And that's the whole story of Israel's history, right in that phrase. Saul did not fear the Lord, and so he would be swept away. Things could have been different for Saul and for Israel. Things can be different for us. Saul denied that his disobedience was significant and he blamed others. Stepping out of denial means admitting that we are sinful, broken, disobedient, and it also means that we take responsibility for our lives and our attitudes and our actions. In 1 John 1, 9, we all know this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we have to own the fact that we are sinful, that we are broken, that we are disobedient, and we need to take responsibility for what we've done in our lives that has hurt our relationship with God and other people. Saul failed to lead God's people in a way that Samuel, in the way that Samuel prayed here. But Jesus Christ has not failed. Jesus lived this prayer in 1 Samuel 12 perfectly. He did not turn aside from God's purposes for him. He did not presume on God's presence with him. Even when tempted at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus served with all his heart. He entrusted himself to the Father. He lived and died and rose again for the glory and the greatness of God. Look at that. God, God does not forsake his people. Why? Because he likes us so much? No, because of the greatness of his name. His glory is paramount. We need to understand that. For his great name's sake, 
it pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body right now in this life. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father. Jesus lived and died and rose again for the glory and the greatness of God the Father. Jesus is the greater king who won the greater victory over a greater enemy and made the greatest sacrifice. And King Jesus is all, my all in all. In Jesus, we find the complete opposite of Saul. In Jesus, we find patience. He embodies and lives patience with his people. Learn from him. Read the gospel. See how patient he is, especially with the disciples. In Jesus, we find truth. He embodies the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he lived an open and truthful life. He never hid who he was. And in Jesus, we find radical humility instead of presumption. He embodied humility, Philippians chapter 2. Even though he was in the, in the form of God, even though he is God, he becomes human and walks and lives among us. In Jesus, we find the king we really need. So what do we need to do? First, in response to being impatient, we need to wait on God's timing and follow his instruction whatever he has called you in your life to be and do. Impatience is birthed in a need to control, which is insecurity. When you feel impatient, stop and ask some questions. Be patient. It's a fruit of the Spirit. We need to live truthfully with ourselves and with our sin, as opposed to the problem of people-pleasing, and walking in denial. Saul walked in denial. He made excuse for his disobedience. We need to embrace the truth even when it costs us. It simply humbles us and keeps us dependent on God's grace and his truth sets us free. So live a truthful life. Thirdly, rather than in presumption, we need to walk in humility. Do not presume upon God's grace. When the conviction of sin comes up, don't wait to confess, but repent and start making changes and live in surrender to God's purposes for his glory and walk humbly. Saul is a man who is unpatient, who walks in denial and walks in pride. This is opposite to how God wants us to live and to walk, to be patient, to live truthfully, and to walk humbly. Let's pray. Lord, you are the great and glorious King. We are a very impatient people and we want to see what we want to see done in our world now. And yet you call us to wait. Even as I was reading in Revelation the other day and the, the, the witnesses under the altar who were 
martyred for their faith, cried out, How long, O Lord? How long? And you said, Wait just a little while longer. Lord, give us patience in the midst of a culture that wants everything now, that wants pleasure now, that wants power now, that wants everything now, and it's so self-centered, and it steps on everyone around us. Oh, Lord, impatience does violence to our souls and to the souls of people around us. Help us to be patient people. Lord, help us to face the truth about who we are. And to not avoid or make excuses for ways in which we have walked away from your plans for our lives, but to face them head on and to admit our need for your grace, your forgiveness, your restoration, and your correction in our lives. Help us to walk in truth. And then, Lord, help us to simply recognize that we can do nothing apart from you. As we learned last week from John chapter 15, you are the vine, you are the life-giving branch, the, the trunk from which we draw life, and apart from you, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, help us to walk in humility, knowing that we need you every day for every breath. King Jesus, thank you that you have embodied great patience, greater patience than anyone else has ever had, ever will have. You walked in truth, you embodied truth. And you walked in deep humility. Thank you. Lord, help us to walk this week in truth, in humility, and in patience. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't have a closing song today, so let's just stand for the benediction. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Actually, I'll back up a bit. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of life. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, in Jesus... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of the cross. Amen. Have a great week. Walk with God in humility and patience.
and truthfulness.